Really nice to see folks signing on. And um, Dr. Deborah Furholden, Associate Dean in Michigan State University's Division of Public Health. Did I say that right? You got it, man. Man, I'm trying, trying to get you on the payroll. Trying to get it right. And Dr. Bobby McCumala. Um, Dr. Bobby is the president. Oh, I'm echoing a little bit here. It stops. Yeah, whatever okay. that was, it stopped. Okay. So Dr. Bobby is president of the Michigan Society of Medical Professionals. No. Michigan, uh, Michigan, Michigan State Medical Society. Michigan State Medical Society and chair-elect of the American Medical Association Board of Trustees. You got it. All right. So and uh, and a neighbor and a neighbor. Now, I would say both of them are neighbors. Again, I, I text both of them in the last 24 hours for things that had nothing to do with health or the medical field. So I lean on them for a number of things. But today we are talking about health. And more specifically, we're talking about a group of folks that have been traditionally marginalized for years um, that have valid reasons to be afraid of a vaccine who have valid reasons to be afraid of the medical community and what it might be offering right now and to not trust um, folks that are meant to protect them, whether it be public systems or me the medical system. And I think um, we are in an interesting time in our community provided what's happened this week. Um, people are doubling down on their lack of trust. And I think we have to figure out what we do in this moment to, to, to forge a path forward, to really be thoughtful about how we move forward as a collective community um, but also on our own terms. So everyone is making this decision for themselves, for their own families, for their own households. And so we want people to be as informed as possible. We've got just enough folks, I think, on here today, Dr. Deb and Dr. Bobby, to get started. I would just ask that you we open up by you introducing yourself. I know you all very well, but but the listening audience may not. So we'll start with you, Dr. Deborah, and then we'll go to you, to Dr. Bobby. And, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to get creative and change up in the middle of the game. So I actually have this is broadcasting live both on your page and my page simultaneously. So you got we have viewers over here and we got viewers over there. So just shout right. out to everybody. So. So, yeah, I'm Deborah for holding. I'm an epidemiologist by training. I, I feel like I've the same way a lot of uh, my people have become many epidemiologists. I've become a little bit of a, a disease infectious disease expert. I got a lot of training on that in graduate school. I have a natural sciences background. Who knew that we would need every ounce of skill and training that we had um, in this season? But I spent a fair amount of my days uh, getting up to speed and staying up to speed and reading FDA reports and talking to other leaders in the field and, and like that. So, so, and my claim to fame is I like to explain things and break them down in terms that make sense for people that are digestible. And I'm the queen of analogies. So we'll see. Oh, we're going to see how many we can get through here. Yeah, we'll see how many we can get tonight. <laughs> All right, Dr. Bobby. Yeah, um, thanks, Isaiah. And it's, it's great to be here and joining uh, both of you, Dr. Dev and, uh, and Isaiah, in this conversation. So I'm an ear, nose, and throat physician here in town in Michigan, in Flint, Michigan. It's my hometown. I, I grew up here. My parents immigrated here from India. Uh, and spent uh, seven years in Ann Arbor for undergraduate and medical school, and then five years in Chicago for residency for ear, nose, and throat, and then moved back into town 20 years ago. Um, and over the course of the past 20 years, sort of worked a lot within the community, both medically and, and non-medically, and doing some downtown Flint work and revitalization, and, and um, proud to uh, serve on the board of the Community Foundation with Isaiah. Um, and, then, and then as it relates to COVID, you know, I happen to find myself as, as, uh, as was mentioned, president of the Michigan State Medical Society at a time when 
healthcare is so critically important to everybody for obvious reasons. Um, and also at the national level at the American Medical Association, lots of um, important work that has been done and work to be done. And now that we're entering sort of perhaps what might be perceived as this last leg of the tunnel with this light at the end of it, um, with the vaccine available, I'm really looking forward to a robust conversation about the science behind vaccinations, the history of of this country um, as it relates to vaccinations, particularly in the black and minority population, um, and, and just trying to get some good science and knowledge out there so we can have intelligent conversations on these issues. Well, first, I want to thank you both for, for joining and being open and transparent with the audience. And I'll just I'll start with the first tough question. Mine is, is probably easy. There's like 9.9 million people um, in the USA. And I've heard several questions about herd immunity. I mean, and I don't even know what herd immunity really is, but trying to understand based off the number of folks that are getting tested and those who have decided not to, what is our goal here? Is it, is it our personal health? Is it community health? Like what is our goal with getting this vaccine? Well, I think, I think and we, this is cool. Cause we didn't talk about any of this in advance. Uh, so Dr. Robbie and I are not in cahoots, but I think it's a both and. You know, people have to be responsible for their own individual health and how you manage your individual health absolutely is going to shape and influence the the health of the community and the and the landscape in the community. So I, I was on a, a webinar earlier and somebody said, Oh, well, you know, I was I was thinking about um just not getting the vaccine and just using herd immunity. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> You can't use herd immunity, right? So herd immunity is like a, a phenomenon that happens when the herd, that, that's us, has a is a certain degree of protection because the lion's share of the herd or some significant proportion of the herd is not at risk for getting the disease through immunity. And immunity comes in two ways, either through personal immunity, personal immunity because you've gotten the disease and you've recovered, or through vaccination. Those are the two primary pathways that people develop immunity to diseases. And because we're still learning about this virus, nobody can exactly say what that percentage is. But if I had to guess based on other diseases, we need somewhere between about 70, 80% of the population to be immune from the disease before we will reach this thing called herd immunity. The, the thing that's relevant about herd immunity because there's nothing magical. We could get there, right? It's like Acapulco. We could arrive. We could get 80% of the population <laughs> immune. It, but it's not. there's nothing magical that happens then, except statistically speaking, the likelihood that somebody who is an active infectious case coming in contact with somebody who's at risk for the disease, i.e. who does not have immunity, becomes very, very low because the majority of people are protected. So you, what you're really trying to do is play the odds. You're trying to get the odds as close to zero as possible that somebody who has it will come in contact with somebody who's susceptible to getting it. Uh, Dr. Robbie, do you have anything yeah. to add here? Yeah, and and, and um, Deb is right on about the, the numbers. You know, it varies between, you know, if 50% of the people out there are immune to the virus for something that's not particularly contagious, that's enough to, to get herd immunity. With this one being highly virulent and highly contagious, you know that number can be north of seventy percent. Um, and so there's 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 two ways to get to twenty twenty two not being like twenty twenty, and that is that everybody is exposed, gets sick, 
whoever dies, dies, whoever survives, survives, and the virus goes away because we all have antibodies. Now, there is an enormous cost to taking that approach, right? A cost of life. Um, and, we, and we've seen those numbers um, in hospitalizations. And, and now, you know, the death rate from this infection has gone down because we've gotten a little bit better at figuring out when to put people on ventilators, how to treat with steroids and, and other sort of treatment modalities. But people are still recovering and surviving, but remaining sick, having renal failure, you know, now perhaps even ending up on a transplant list, things like that. So the approach of just getting everybody sick so that then we can have herd immunity because everyone has antibodies because they had the infection is not ideal. Um, and that's where vaccination comes into play. So you can develop antibodies to this virus without actually being infected by the virus by just being exposed to a portion of it. And so if we can get to the point where 70% of people have either gotten the infection or gotten the vaccine, now the virus, you know, if, if you've got three people here and one person has it, and before the vaccine, they would have spread it to person number two who would have spread it to person number three. And now in this scenario, person number two has been vaccinated. They can't get it and therefore can't pass it to person number three. And then you take that and you put it across the country and there isn't a place for the virus to jump to. Um, it's like there used to be an old video game Frogger where you'd sort of start on one side of the, <laughs> of, the road, of, of, this, of the road and then you'd have to hop along on something to get to the other side. If there's nothing to hop onto, that virus is going to die just like the frog in the video game, right? And that's the goal is to not give it the next host to jump to by making sure that host is immune from, from the infection. Ah, so it's interesting. We, we know that there's been a, first off, thank you for that first answer. We know that there have been a round, at least a first round. I think they have these set up in tiers where first responders were receiving, receiving it. I know, I thought I saw a picture of you, Dr. Bobby, taking at least the first part. Um, do we know about, and I'm going to have a follow-up to this question, but we do, do we know, and I'm going to ask this question on behalf of April Cook Hawkins. Hey, April, hope you're still watching. Um, what are some of the side effects you're seeing with the vaccine? Yeah. So, um, in fact, I just got my second dose of the vaccine this morning, right? So, you know, if I push right here mm -hmm. under my bandaid, it's a little bit sore, but other than that, no other sort of side effects. So I'll tell you my experience from the first one and then other experiences that I've heard. Um, the first one was again very similar you know within 24 hours a little bit of soreness um, at the spot of the infection and then maybe the next day a little bit of soreness sort of in the armpit where there might be some lymph nodes where the immune reaction is now taking place to those that portion of the virus now it's not the entire virus that you get again it's a segment of that virus um, but that's my experience from the first time around what i've heard about the the booster so now the second shot that i just got this morning because I already have antibodies to that virus, that immune reaction may be a little bit more significant, maybe a little bit more soreness. I've heard from some people that have gotten it um, in the past 48 hours that it really wasn't any worse than the first time around. But I've also heard that, yes, there are people that sort of get knocked on their butt um, you know, for a day or so fatigue because that immune response is, is uh, significant. But nobody that I've heard of that have that's gotten it so far out of the you know the tens of thousands and the and the stories that we hear and see has been sick for more than 24 hours and not even really sick at all but just sort of soreness fatigue for about a 24-hour period Dr. The thing that I, yeah the thing that i think is also relevant is for people to not confuse your body's immune response which is a good thing with actually being sick with the virus you, do, you cannot get the virus from the vaccine. 
say more about immune response or your body's immune response because that, I'm gonna that, hand that, that back to Dr. Me. Bobby. Oh, okay. and that's why I like yeah. having the MD on. I can do it, but I, I, I'm gonna hand it back to Dr. Bobby. Sure, sure. So when you get infected with the virus, you've got the entire, entire. You know, we've seen pictures of that virus. It's sort of spherical. It's got little spike proteins on it. That thing is being attacked by your immune system. It is replicating within your body and it's making you sick because it's spreading throughout your body. The vaccine is literally just one portion of that viral particle, right? So that one little spike protein, a segment of it is now being produced in your body so that your body can create antibodies to that little segment of it. So you don't have the entire virus in you. In fact, far from it, you have just a, a sliver of the entire DNA of that virus is now in you and your and your antibodies are being developed to that. So what, what Dr. Deb said is that you're not infected with the virus. What you're feeling is just because your immune system is fighting it. All right. So we're getting an amazing amount of questions, which is great because I mean, people are chiming in and they have questions to ask. I'm going to start and I'm trying to go rapid fire. Whoever has the best answer or the fastest response to the answer, that will be the best. Um, this question I have is, is all that we're seeing or that you are seeing with response with regard to vaccine responses uh, or the impact of the vaccine when people get it. Are those things consistent with the clinical trials that you know of? I can answer that. It, 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 I, we haven't seen anything yet that I know of out in the community that is brand new or wasn't discovered during the clinical trials phase. The one thing I want to just say about that for people also, because this notion of warp speed, I know raises the question for people, did they skip some steps? The, the technology of mRNA vaccines, messenger RNA vaccines, has been around for decades. The difference between the mRNA vaccine and a typical vaccine is once they've got the genetic profile for the vac for the, the virus, they can develop a candidate vaccine literally in a lab within days. Where the, the, the process got much faster is at the early phase, but the rolling it out, the, the testing it on a small number of people the testing for safety, the understanding of side effects and potential adverse effects, no steps were skipped in that process. The warp speed came because an mRNA vaccine, once you've got the, it's like having a photocopier. Once you've got the, the document and you got a photocopier, you can start you know, making copies of it. And mRNA vaccines, once they've got the genetic profile of the virus, it's easy to pick a piece of it up and make a candidate vaccine built on the, the known genetic code. Other virus, I mean, other um, vaccines work in a very, very different way. So, so I'm gonna tie two questions here together, Dr. Deborah. you keep it. And if you don't, you know how to throw it to Dr. Dr. Bobby. Um, I'm gonna tie the question of Lenise Barbie. Actually it's from Lynn Barbie and Trishelle Young. If I inappropriately tie these questions together, jump back in the chat and let me know, hey, Isaiah, you inappropriately tie these together. Lynn, yeah. Lynn, Lynn, I keep saying Lenise like this is her daughter. Hey, Lynn, how are you? <laughs> I had COVID, still not sure if I should get the vaccine. What do you advise? And Trishelle, hey, Trishelle Young, how are you? Her question says, is there any particular group of individuals that are not recommended to get the vaccine or should everyone get the vaccine? That seems like a great question for the physician. Okay, um, Dr. Bobby. Yep. Yeah. So uh, so as far as the question about if I've had the infection already, should I get the vaccine? The short answer is yes. 
Um, there's not an urgency there because again, you have antibodies to the entire virus. Uh, but what we also have discovered and what we think we know, but you know, time, time will tell is that that immunity can be waning. So let's say that back in March of 2020, that you had the infection and you had an antibody that um, level that sort of peaked in May or June. Now that we're you know several months out from that and that antibody level goes down, just like with the vaccine, you get a booster. Um, just like with the tetanus you know shot, you need a booster of that. That there's value to getting the vaccination, even if you've had the infection, to maintain a high level of immunity and antibody level to all sorts of portions of that virus. So. So yes, the short answer is if you've had the infection, you should still get the vaccine when you become eligible. I think there was a second part, Isaiah, that you mentioned. I should everyone get it. And I think that you answered the second part. And that actually covers, I think, April Cook Hawkins question as well. April, if I did, if that doesn't cover your question, please jump back in the chat and let us know. I do have a question from Shard Wagner. And Shard said, are there foods and liquids that are antiviral that we can consume to naturally vaccinate? Yeah. So again, in in theory, there are a lot of people that believe and there's some data to support. Like, for example, a lot of people will talk about taking vitamin C when they get a common cold. Right. So rhinovirus is the virus that causes a common cold, just like COVID-19 is the uh, is the um, virus that causes this infection. But we are so far from having any sort of robust data to say that taking a thousand milligrams of vitamin C will actually work for COVID, like maybe it's been shown to work for rhinovirus. Um, so it's highly speculative. I certainly wouldn't rely on that to build enough immunity that now you feel like you can't get sick. Can I add one thing to that though? Please. Because I, I really want people to make sure they leave with the things that they can do. Giving your body the best fighting chance against any foreign pathogen is always a good thing. So I, I keep telling people, you could be working and should be working to boost your immune system. And the three basic things that I'm telling people to do. So the first thing is to cut smoking. If you're a smoker, you should, you should not be smoking. If you're a heavy drinker, you should restrict your drinking. I wouldn't tell people to not do anything because these are tough times, right? And if that glass of wine brings you joy and helps you <laughs> unwind at the end of the night, you know, so be it. But, you know, we want to boost our immune system. So taking drinking and smoking and putting them over here, right? Smoking specifically, because remember, this is a virus that has a really good time working on your respiratory system. And from the people that I talked to that have had it and recovered, boy, the loss of breath that some people face and, and feeling like they were going to die because they couldn't catch their breath. So you want to give your body the best fighting chance. Three things I tell people, sleep. Sleep is your body's opportunity to restore itself. And then people always say, well, Dr. Deb, how many hours of sleep can I get a night? Well, that varies person to person. But since people like answers, six hours. Okay. And then I tell people <laughs> to eat the best. It's true. They, the people want answers. So six hours, at least six hours. Um, eat the best nutrient-rich diet that your money can afford. And I was surprised at how many people don't know about nutrients, nutrient-dense foods and what that is. Give us those some examples. Are the, those are the foods that typically don't have a label on them, right? So fruits, vegetables, lean meats, fish, things like that. They're chock full of the kind of vitamins that keep your immune system strong. It's not going to protect you or prevent you from getting COVID. Again, it's, about, it's like training day. It's like getting your body in shape for the big game or the big fight. So it's sleep, 
eating the best high uh, nutrient dense diet um, that you can afford in 30 minutes a day of moving your arms and legs. And I always tell people, I would not go to the gym. I, and I don't even think that's an option for us in, in, in many of the places where some of our people are. And some other people are throwing some things up. Um, I saw that. I yeah. want to ask you can, you, can you, can we put certified on that? Ray Boone says CMOS. Are we okay to certify? You agree? So I was, I, I can say there's no necessary data that says CMOS does anything in particular as it relates to COVID. But CMOS is, again, one of these, these foods that if you look at it, it's super high in all of these really great vitamins and minerals and nutrients. So in the example, CMOS would be an example of a nutrient-dense food. But I don't want to give people the false impression that this is going to somehow stop you from getting COVID. What it's doing is helping to build a strong immune system. So sleep, 30 minutes a day of moving your arms and legs, and a, and a high uh, nutrient uh, and while while you're on that, April just asked, what vitamins do you recommend to boost the immune system? So beyond those nutrient rich, nutrient rich foods, what vitamins do you recommend? That's a complicated question because it kind of varies a little bit across the life course. The one thing I'll say, and then I'll throw it to Dr. Bobby if he has anything he wants to add, is there's some different studies that have found that people who've been hit hard by COVID are vitamin D deficient. And I know many of us in Michigan are vitamin D deficient during the winter time because the sun helps us to process and um, metabolize vitamin D. So vitamin D is something that has shown up and in, in, in I'm just citing a couple of research studies that have been published. A lot of people who have um, tested COVID positive and, and been hospitalized, they found that they've had vitamin D deficiency. Again, don't wanna mislead anybody into thinking that taking vitamin D is gonna prevent you from getting it or ensure that you won't um, have problems. Dr. Bobby? Yeah, so I mean, right on about vitamin D, vitamin C, again, just because of the historic data associated with uh, the ability to fight viral infections. And then the same thing with zinc. A lot of people have talked about zinc and viral infections. And so those are probably the three main ones um, that get tossed around as having some potential antiviral effect to help an otherwise healthy person immune system function maximally so that if they are exposed, I mean, it's not, you know, if somebody sneezes on you and they have COVID, and, and 500 viral particles enter your airway, it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get sick and start shedding that virus. It all depends on how your immune system handles that exposure. And so the stronger your immune system is because of nutrition that's you know to be maintained the way that Deb mentioned, or because of some of these supplements, you may not get sick with the infection. And that's why you know the 40% the of people that are asymptomatic and sort of have the sniffles for a few days, um, but make it through fine, that's what we want, right? We don't want, that to be 40% of people in the hospital and on a ventilator. We want, if you're gonna be infected, we want you to make it through with the least amount of um, damage possible. And even more critically, we don't want you to spread it to your neighbor or your family member. All right, and so I do have a follow-up question. Well, not a follow-up question, maybe it's a pivot here. Um, Ray Jr., hey, that's my, they're in Texas. We love Michiganders that moved to Texas and still ask questions from back in Michigan, love it. The question is, can you break down the specifics of mRNA? I know you mentioned this a little bit earlier, Dr. Deborah, but break down the specifics of it and how it works in the body. Dr. Bobby, you want to take that one? Sure. Yep. Yep. So, so mRNA, the M there stands for messenger RNA, right? So we know about DNA that exists within the nucleus of a cell. Um, mRNA is something that isn't in the nucleus of a cell. So that's the first thing to remember is that, you know, people... 
there was a lot of hesitancy related to vaccines about this RNA getting into the nucleus of a cell and changing my own DNA and then, you know, me, you know, growing an extra horn out of the side of my head or something. That's not what happens with mRNA. mRNA stays in what's called a cytoplasm of the cell, never enters the nucleus, never enters the place where DNA is located that makes you, you, Isaiah, and makes you, you, Deb, and makes me. Um, and instead, it, it, it's, um, there's, there's an area in the cell, the Golgi apparatus, that basically makes proteins. And so the mRNA is used as code to then make the proteins that then get out into the immune system. So antibodies are made to the little spike protein. So it's, it's genetic code, but it's never in the nucleus. And it just makes the protein we want to be made so that you can get antibodies to that protein. Thank you so much. Karma Lewis said, how do we know this vaccine will actually work for what appears to be the different strains of the virus? Yep. So, you know, you know, we've heard about the um, one that, that started in the UK and is just now becoming more and more detectable here in the US about um, the, the uh, strain of the virus that seems to be more contagious, right? It's not necessarily more fatal, but it's easier to spread. Something about the mutation makes this virus now easier to spread from person to person. But what they know, though, is that the antibodies that are made from the original vaccine, right, the Pfizer and the, and the Moderna vaccines that are out there, still work against the same portion of this newly mutated virus. What mutated isn't where the antibodies attach. If that happens, we're in a little bit of trouble and we got to go back to the drawing board and then create um, a new vaccine for a different portion of that virus, right? But right now, the target of the antibodies that are being made still exists even in the other form of the virus. So the vaccines are still good. So can you get infected even if you are vaccinated? And if so, um, can it make the vaccination or the infection itself less dangerous? Right. So once you get the vaccination and you have those antibodies, right? And when they talk about the 90% effectiveness of these antibodies and of these vaccinations, that virus isn't going to replicate in your system. Just like when you get chickenpox and then you get exposed to chickenpox, you're not gonna get it again because the antibodies immediately attack that virus and it doesn't make you sick. The same thing happens with this virus. So 90% of the time, if you're exposed to COVID-19 after you have your vaccination and after your antibodies levels have gone up, no, you're not going to get infected. So um, one last question, and I'm gonna combine a couple of people, actually Jennifer Farrington and um, there was uh, Kathy George and a number of other people said, hey, they're trying to weigh the odds. And you talked about this earlier, Dr. Deborah. We're playing we're playing the odds. So which one is better? And I'm not sure that I really want to be in this fight, but which one is better? The vaccination or having had the virus before and recovered from it? Which one lasts longer was the question. Well, so so I'm I'm gonna um and that's why I didn't do the whole Dr. Deborah for holding. I really should put Dr. Deb. I'm about to go a little Debbie on y'all. So let's just say this. <laughs> we don't quite understand fully um, why some people have such a hard time. We do know some things, but there are some, some people, I know couples where one had what appeared to be the sniffles and the other was down for three weeks. I've heard stories of people who literally thought and said in their experience, they felt like they were dying. It was one of the scariest things that they had experienced not being able to breathe. Those people recovered, honest, actually, because we, we talked about it, they're still among the living. So I think that's a question of like, how do you see the world and how do you view the world? This is something that we now have a available layer of protection that will provide 
more good than harm for people. That's what the vaccine is. There none of the layers of protection that we have in place. Wearing a mask in and of itself won't solve all the problems. The vaccine won't solve all the problems. But all of these layers, as you begin to put them together, we start to build this wall. To roll the dice when we've got all of these strategies that if you put them together, put a lot of layers between you and the virus and, and increase your chances, one, of not contracting it, and two, if you do contract it, having a much milder case of the illness. If I were personally weighing that against getting sick, rolling the dice, that I would get then people in my household sick, even if I did well, my aunt might not, my neighbor might not, the the you know, a visitor might not, one of my children might not. So I to answer the question of what's worse or what's better to get the vaccine or to get the disease. I don't think it's a gamble we're taking. It's an unnecessary gamble since we now have a safe and credible vaccine. That's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with that completely. And that, you know, on, on day one, you can get exposed to the vaccine. Uh, I'm sorry, exposed to the virus or get the vaccine. The difference is on day two, after the vaccine, I'm not contagious. I'm not spreading it. My immunity is building but I can still go to work. I can do whatever I need to do. But you get the infection. And not only are you at risk of being in that 10% of people that gets really sick and maybe even that 1% of people that might not make it out the other side from this infection, but for two weeks, you're out of commission, right? I mean, you're not supposed to go to work. You're not supposed to do anything. So you don't, so we can stop the spread. Um, and so given the choice of both of those pathways to lead to immunity, I take the one that is least disruptive and least dangerous to the people around me, like Deb said. Yeah. Okay. Lamont says, are there any health conditions that a person could have and shouldn't get vaccinated? I know that's a repeat of the question that you all answered earlier, but we're going to be on for about an hour. We must give it a shot again. We need to hear things. How many times, Dr. Deborah? How many times you said they three. need to hear them? They need to hear them at least three. At least, you said, at you least three. You said 10 earlier, but go, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Are there so, any health conditions? Yeah, I mean, anyone that's had a previous sort of reaction to the vaccine, even though those things are rare, um, you know, the chances, the numbers that we've seen from this vaccine as far as causing an anaphylactic reaction, right? Like a severe reaction where somebody might need to be in the hospital and get their EpiPen out and stuff like that. We're talking about single digits per million, right, of people getting the vaccine. So it's rare. But if you have a history of that with some other vaccine, then absolutely you shouldn't be getting this one, right? So those are sort of the main main ones of a history of a reaction, but then also those things that affect your immune system, right? So if you're getting chemotherapy, if you have a suppressed immune system, things like that, um, those are the ones that you really should talk to your physician about the pros and cons, your risk of exposure, you know, your living situation, who you're exposed to, what that level of exposure is relative to the risk of, of the vaccine and what it might do to an already compromised immune system. Um, those are the ones that um, require a conversation. But again, we're talking about single digit numbers of people that are at risk of some bad outcome relative to the millions of people that are getting the vaccine. So Renita Bingham asked, are there any known interactions between the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine? And should there be a gap in time between these vaccinations? Yeah, that's, that's a good question and nobody really knows the answer to that. But what I've heard is that yes, they should be separated and they're not doing them at the same time. Um, just because again, you know, if your chances are, you know, one per several hundred thousand of having a reaction, and now you take two at the same time, 
as opposed to making sure you're not in the population that has a reaction before taking the second one, that's the smarter way to go, right? To, to separate them so that in case something happens, it's not a double whammy. And then Dr. Bobby, I think the question about how long it lasts is, is coming back, but is this an annual vaccination where you have to get the two part every year or how long does the, vac does the vaccination last? Yeah, so the short answer is we don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 what we've heard so far is that it seems to be a waning immunity, just like the infection itself, the immunity seems to wane. It's not like chicken pox where those antibodies seem to last a lifetime and therefore you just get it once and you're done. Um, so if I had to bet, and this is just you know guessing, if I was in Vegas and had to put my chips on, is this something that's gonna be lifetime immunity versus something that's gonna need to be um, boosted at some point down the road, whether that's a year, whether that's three years, we don't know. I put my chips on a waning immunity, meaning immunity that tends to go down over time that needs to be boosted. And I think that also answers Karma, Karma's question from earlier. Karma, if that doesn't answer your question from earlier, make sure you jump back into the chat for me and ask your question again. I have a question that, that leans a bit. So yeah, how many boosters will we need in the future? I think that maybe answers that question. I do have a question. <laughs> It leans, it leans political. And so you may say, hey, we are talking about health right now. We're trying to inform people about the health. But we know that, that these decisions that we're making in this space are impacting the economy and in the, work, in the workforce. And this question says, thoughts on if the vaccine should be mandatory in certain professions or should people have a choice to be vaccinated? Well, that's a, that's a whole different area. You're right. It's political. I know. I know. And so, so here's what I'll say. Um, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, is that what that the acronym stands for? They are the agency that makes sure there's fair play at play at work, right? So mm -hmm. if somebody tries to discriminate against you at work because you're left-handed or you're purple or you're a female or whatever, um, the EEOC are the people who come in. And the EEOC has actually put their hands up and said, if employers, especially employers in the health space, want to require that people get the vaccine, that it doesn't fall under our umbrella of workplace discrimination. So um, I don't know about mandating. I think we need to um, do the work to restore and where we haven't um, built, we need to then build trust and confidence in the community we need to make sure that people have good, credible information so that they can make good, informed choices. I will tell you straight up, when the vaccine first came out, I was a hex. No, I wasn't. I'm like, you get it. You get it, Dr. Bobby, and tell me how that went. I mean, that's just real for me. You know, I have a type of position, even though I'm in a medical school and I'm, I'm in public health, I was really surprised at how we could keep all the trains moving without you know, from the comfort of my kitchen counter and, and through Zoom and other stream programs, okay? Dr. Bobby doesn't quite have that luxury. He had to move on that decision continuum a lot faster because he's on the front line interacting with people, potentially putting himself and other, others in harm's way. So what I think is more important is that people really do the work, get their questions answered, hear from people like Lynn who said, what she literally, her comment, I don't want anyone to go through what I did with the virus. I almost died. It's so hard for people to wrap their heads around. There is something worse than death, which is being down and not being sure, not knowing how it's going to go for you. 
and, and even worse, people with all the long-term consequences. So the, the, I, I'm gonna answer the question I wanna answer, which is I think we need to walk people down the road of knowledge and information so people can be empowered in the choice that they make. I would find it hard to believe that if people really understood what's at stake and what's at risk and what the benefit is to them and their families and their community, that we won't see a lot of people move on hesitancy. But what we've got to do is really build and restore trust. And that has to start with telling the truth about all of the, the valid reasons that people have to mistrust medicine, healthcare, and our healthcare system. You, you know what I love about Flintstones? We reserve the right, and this is before the water crisis, we reserve the right to question everything and everyone. And so one of the questions here, um, Shar Wagner says, so what are in the ingredients? And I don't know that either one of you all can walk through the ingredients and the impact of those ingredients or why they were included in the vaccine, but where should we be going for information like this? I know the FDA released some stuff in December. Um, I know the CDC has been releasing information, in many cases, long documents that folks like me aren't trying to interpret at all for myself or for my family. Where can we get information if we have questions about what's in the vaccine? What, what those different things that are in the vaccine are intended to do in the body and how those things impact us when we're, when we're like, when we're Flintstones and we reserve the right to question everything. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would say, so you mentioned the FDA. I mean, when, when I got this question, when, you know, when the first vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine started to roll out, that's exactly where I went. And they've got a list of the ingredients. Now, if you don't have a science background, you're going to look at that and it's all going to look toxic, right? When you see things like, you know, polyethylene glycol and ditetraacetylamide. I mean, these are things that will scare you just by reading them. If they were in your, in your, you know, breakfast oatmeal, you'd freak out. But when you have a science background, you can look at that and you'd say, okay, this is the mRNA portion, right? This is the part we want. This is the lipid portion, you know, and then the things that I mentioned are part of that lipid portion, just like, you know, the fat and your steak that you're, you know, you're putting in your belly. And so the lipid portion is so the mRNA can get through the, the cell membrane, which is lipids, so it can get through there into the place where then the vaccine can actually work. Um, potassium chloride, um, sodium chloride, salt, basically, um, in preservatives, sucrose, things like that. So, you know, you look at that list and it looks scary until you figure out what exactly it is that's in this fancy name and what the purpose is and which ones, you know, with the lipids versus the mRNA versus the preservatives. Um, and then it's it's much less scary. What I would say, though, is where not to get information about the safety of vaccines is uh, social media and, and places that are that have an agenda to give you that information. Right. They're telling you what they want you to believe, as opposed to, you know, the the science behind it, which is easily researchable. Right. I mean, we've all gotten smarter scientifically um, by experiencing covid because we have researched it on our own. Um, and we know much more about cell membranes and mRNA now, and the, and the people on this, you know, on this um, call right now know more about it than they did three years ago. That's for sure. I tell you, I'm going to know more about mRNA before I leave this call than I ever knew before. But there was a question earlier about whether or not what was the impact of mRNA on the autoimmune system. So, so the. I guess so autoimmune infers that the immune system is attacking itself. Um, and so, you know, I mean, as far as mRNA on the immune system, what in this case, what it they does. They may have is, said immune system, and I just put auto okay. on there because that's something I knew <laughs> as well. So, hey. Um, I know you asked the question. I was like, um. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, the effect of mRNA <laughs> in the immune system is that the mRNA codes for a protein that then the body sees as foreign and creates antibodies to that protein so that it can get rid of that protein. And so in this case, the mRNA is encoding for the protein of one portion of the virus that then the body can see as foreign and eliminate it from circulation so the virus can't replicate and, and cause um, havoc in your body. Okay, so I got two questions. I'm going to tie them together again. April is probably going to be like, Isaiah is tying all of my questions to somebody else's question. But I think you already hit this one on who shouldn't get the vaccine. But tie who shouldn't get the vaccine to the question of, is there any new information related to pregnant or breastfeeding with the vaccine? Yep. So, I mean, I'll jump in as far as so who shouldn't get the vaccine. Again, we mentioned that group of people who have had previous sort of reactions to the vaccine, people that have known allergies to vaccine ingredients, things like that. I mean, if you had, if you, you know, got a flu shot three years ago and needed an EpiPen to get rid of that anaphylactic reaction, if you were that one for several hundred thousand, then yes, you have no business getting this vaccine. Let the other 70 to 80% of people get it so that then we can get rid of the virus from society. And that's the other part of it. I'll just stop for a second and say, you know, we do it for ourselves to keep ourselves healthy. And we do it for those people that can't get the vaccine, the people that have had previous reactions, the people that are getting chemotherapy for, for cancer, you know, the, the immunocompromised, you know, the people that have leukemia or something like that. Um, we do it for them because they can't get it on their own. All right, Dr. Deb, anything to add to that? Um, no, not really. What I, well, the one thing I will say is this, is if people didn't recognize now more than ever, it is so important that you have a relationship with a healthcare provider, you know, like not being able to get, you know, have somebody in your corner who knows you, who knows your health history. And don't get me wrong. We're all learning about this in real time. There are those um, among us and the infectious disease folks and the virologists and people who've been developing vaccines forever and physicians who've been on the front lines of treating people who are sort of better poised, if you will, but we're all learning about this in real time. Having a relationship with somebody who is a partner in your overall health and well-being. if you didn't have that coming into COVID, it's not like you can't get it now, but these are the kinds of questions you also should be asking of your doctor. Now, if you ask your doctor, run down the ingredients in the vaccine, your typical primary care physician is probably not going to be able to answer that question. But I can guarantee you what they are doing is staying up to speed on, okay, so, I, you know, my daughter, for example, she has um, plaque psoriasis, she has eczema. She's got some things that sort of start to get in this autoimmune world. And so we were able to say to our doctor, is she at elevated risk for a bad outcome? She's had a flu vaccine. She's had some side effects from those vaccines. And it was great because the doctor said, well, it would, she would be probably somebody who'd be at a greater risk for a side effect, very different from an adverse effect. So it, th these are the kinds of things where having a healthcare professional who knows you, that you've built relationship with, that's an authentic, honest, open you know, dialogue, that, that's what people need. And so I really encourage people, if you do not have a primary care physician or healthcare provider, now is the time. And if you are uninsured or underinsured, people should be reaching out to the local federally qualified health center in their community and getting a primary care physician or primary health care provider. If you're in Flint and Genesee County, that's Hamilton Community Health Network. I know we got people here from Texas. I got a lot of my folks on from DC, Baltimore, 
you know, I, people are on here from all over the place, but you need a primary care physician. You need somebody to work with um, through some of these issues. And so, so speaking of information, getting information, sources for information, where should we be getting information about um, how long these clinical trials took? Who was included in the clinical trials? Um, how long have they been testing? And over, what, I mean, over what period of time were they testing this? And what did they find out? Where should we be getting that information from? All of this is available on the FDA website, but unless, I mean, they might as well have written it in Chinese. And I'm, and the reason <laughs> I'm going to say that is because, no, I'm not even kidding you. I am a very smart woman. I've got a, you know, PhD in public health. I have a natural sciences background. I am able to wade through that stuff. I serve on three different data safety and monitoring boards, but I don't do review of um, vaccines. I've sit, I sit on a data safety and monitoring board for an organization actually in Baltimore, and I review clinical trials, but not vaccine development. And I've been able to wade through it. But we had a conversation with Dr. Leon McDougall, president of the mm -hmm. National Medical Association. He is on that board. He has gotten, well, he's on the task force, the Congressional COVID Equity Task Force. And they've got to sit in on some of those meetings and see behind the curtain. The FDA has published all that and put it out in the public and it's available to us. But it, it wasn't written with the lay person in mind. This is where the trust becomes so important because what I can say is that there's a process, the president, the head of the CDC, you know, somebody who's been bought and paid for doesn't get to say the vaccine's safe, roll it out. There's a real rigorous process that happens in the background with highly qualified, credible, trustworthy scientists who are not a part of the trial itself. Their only dog in the fight is to make sure that the data say this vaccine is safe for use and rollout into communities. And they've so, done that. So, so people so want to look at themselves, go ahead, go to the FDA website, <laughs> but I think you will find thick, heavy reading that might not empower you. So Kathy George asked a very practical question. Um, sure. One that makes a whole lot of sense, but I can't even, I can't even begin to answer it. Um, where, Will people get the vaccine? Will it be your primary care physician? Will it be at the local um, CVS? Like, where will you get the vaccine when it's available for you? And I know there's this tiered approach to it where we have like one, one A, one B, one C. I know it's broken out that way, but where will you get it? And maybe even walk through the tiers, if you will. Yeah, I mean, as far as where to get it, the goal should be to make it as convenient as possible, right? So for healthcare workers right now, where are we getting it? You know, we can get it from our hospital or we can go to the Walgreens in town to get it, right? How great would it be if when your time comes up, and we'll talk about sort of 1A, 1B, 1C and all that stuff, but how great would it be that when your time comes up, you can just go to your local store and, uh, and, and get it or your physician's office or the hospital itself um, or, you know, the, the FQHCs or, or any of these places, the more we can get these vaccine into responsible people's hands that can then administer it, um, the better we do um, as, a, as a community and getting faster towards that herd immunity. Um, I honestly think we've, we've stumbled um, already in that, you know, we have vaccine that's sitting at the national level, we have vaccine sitting at the state level, and we're just not, um, we, we could have come out of the gate running and it seems like we can't we we tripped a little bit, um, but I think I'm optimistic by nature, and I think we are going to get to a place where we're 
where when we get to 1B and 1C and the other phases, that we will be more efficient at deploying that virus. Okay, and I think, I don't know if we, we weren't clear. I can't remember the answer on this one either. Maybe we missed it a little bit. There were two parts of the question. There was one part of the question that asked about pregnant women. There was a second part of the question about the breastfeeding. Um, could we um, answer or maybe lean into that question about breastfeeding? Yeah, I mean, so the short answer is we don't know. I think we will get that uh, more scientific answer pretty quickly here as the vaccine gets deployed and studies continue to be done. But there just wasn't that assessment at the beginning in that first 50,000 people that got the vaccine. They didn't break that down into pregnant or lactating mothers yet. What we do know, though, is the science behind it. The mRNA doesn't, it's, it's not the actual virus itself. Again, it's just a particular um, genetic code for a particular protein. So science would suggest that there should be no problem getting it. Um, and in particular, since you know pregnant mothers are at particular risk of the infection because of immune system issues, um, it's, it's a population that we should vaccinate. Um, so I would say simply that we don't know, but the science would suggest that it's not an issue and the vaccine is okay. Um, if that's an uncomfortable answer for you, then I would suggest waiting until there's more robust evidence that it is truly safe instead of just empirically safe. All right. It does Thank point you. to something, however, though, because having now a pregnant person in my life, I haven't, I haven't, I, I haven't gotten enough data and information. And she basically said, I don't care what data and information you got. I'm not risking it. She said, you all need to get the vaccine. You all make sure you're practicing the protocols. I'm going to do my part. I keep telling people, I think, yeah, it's an individual choice, but it is very much a family conversation. These are conversations that you should be having within your household and within your family. So what we've decided is to wrap a buffer, a layer of protection around. And, and, and I guess I really want to just stand and shout on the rooftops, but I need a couple more weeks before I can do that. So in, in the future, you guys will know who I'm talking about. We're going to wrap a layer of protection around this very special person in my life to make sure that she's protected. Right. So you got a pregnant person in your family. One of the best things that the family could do is make sure that they're protected and not putting that person at risk. So I have, a, I, oh, please, please. We, and that's another group that we have a community responsibility for, right? It shouldn't be up to just Dr. Deb family to sort of insulate those people that are at risk. We 70% that don't have an issue with getting the vaccine medically should be doing it so that those people that could be at risk, whether it's immunotherapy or, or, or chemotherapy and immunosuppression, or whether it's pregnancy that have a doubt or a true fear or a true risk, we should be doing it so that they don't have to even worry about taking that risk. We can get 70% and not have them take that risk at all. Yeah. And so I think we all know that tier one was was first responders and um, Joe Fike, who probably would be narrating or facilitating this conversation far better than I. So, Joe, hands off to you. He says, Dr. Bobby, how can you convince people to get the shot when so many first so many doctors, Flint doctors, nurses and first responders are refusing to get it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's an important question, Joel. And, and I, I hear you. Um, and all, all I can say is that it's through conversations like this to sort of get away from uh, unfounded fear uh, and, and create sort of a foundation of knowledge that then can be used to dispel that fear. Uh, now, I mean, you know, when I went to get my second vaccine today, there was a line already out the door. So 
I think it may be a vocal minority of healthcare workers that aren't getting it for various reasons, or maybe skepticism about the disease. Maybe it's a past experience. Maybe it's exactly what we're trying to address here with a with a history in this country of vaccines in a particular demographic in the black population that has a distrust of vaccines. Whatever that reason is, it's knowledge that can dispel that misinformation um, and and build confidence. Um, right. And so it's only through conversations, I think, Joel, that we can we can instill that uh, confidence. Thank you for answering that question. Kids going back to school, Elizabeth Guerrero Lyons. Thoughts on kids going back to school. If teachers are vaccinated with, of course, masks and social distancing, are children safer? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and that there was a lot of, you know, I was reading stuff all over the place nine months ago about how children were immune to the virus and they weren't getting sick, et cetera, et cetera. And now we see, you know, I mean, your social media feed and mine probably pop up every every few days with somebody who is 18 that didn't make it through. Right. They got infected and, and, and passed away because of it. So kids can get the virus. They're probably less prone to getting it, but they can certainly spread the virus. And so I would say that, yes, vaccinating teachers to protect them is great. But what happens when that kid is carrying the virus and then takes it home to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or, or their aunt or uncle? So it's not just vaccinating the teachers that we need to consider when we put kids in the classroom. But when they leave the classroom, they're going somewhere, right? And they're taking that virus with them. So the teacher's protected on this end, but what about their family member on this end, not having gotten the vaccine yet and not protected? Those are the things we need to think about when answering these questions. And I guess a final question, will we be notified when it's available to us? I think I am in the next tier due to age and health conditions. And I know as I looked through the tiers, it was like there was a date, then there was like maybe a chance and there was to be determined pretty much for the rest of the tiers. Um, so the question I would ask on the end of this, if you don't mind, Lynn, not only when will we be notified, but by who? Where should we be looking for information about where we sit in the tiers and when it's available to us? Yeah, so we've been pointing people to the County Health Department, which has really sort of ramped up just in the past few days. Um, their website, as far as getting on a list and, and getting information out there about um, when people are eligible. Um, and then, you, you know, that's not gonna be, you're, you're not gonna have to look hard to find that information. You know, that stuff, that's going to be on the news. It's going to be, you know, information flow, just like we're doing here. Um, it's not going to be a secret about when the next phase opens up. Just like the governor announced today, I think that on, on Monday, they're going to open it up to uh, um, long-term care facilities and, you know, sort of that next, um, that, that next uh, uh, population of, of people to get it other than healthcare workers. So it, it's, it won't be silent. You're going to find out. All right. Well, I will tell you, this is the type of conversation that we need, not telling people that they need to take vaccine or that they should, that they should or that they should not. But that people are well informed when they make that decision. And so um, because you are both personal friends of mine and I promised an hour and we're at 58 minutes and 12 seconds, I want you to answer the phone when I call you. And so I'm going to let you off just before, but I'm going to give you maybe 30 seconds apiece. If you had one final statement or word to share um, with the listening audience, what would you say to them as they're wrestling with these two tensions? Am I more afraid of COVID or more afraid of the vaccine? What would you say to them? Yeah, I'll just, I'll jump in. I'll just say that you know, knowledge is power, right? And, and, and that's exactly what you're trying to do here, Isaiah, and, and Dr. Furholden and, and myself and everybody that's engaged in this conversation is trying to increase the knowledge of the science behind this virus and, and our, our attack on this virus. 
Um, and the more knowledgeable we are, the more intelligent conversations and more intelligent decisions we will make. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm all for getting people's knowledge up to the level that then they can make an informed decision. Thank you, Dr. Dan. Yeah, yeah. I'm, what, what Dr. Bobby said, I think that's right <laughs> on the money. That, like he said it. So I just encourage people keep grappling. You know, I don't, it, I don't want people to just do something because they feel pressured to do it or they don't understand because you know what? There's a lot we don't know and we are learning. And so you do want to know what are the risks to me? You know, I'm a, I'm a researcher by training and we, our thing is informed consent. And the, the basic criteria for that is people have to understand the risks and the benefits and they have to be able to weigh that out and freely choose. And that's all I want for people. But like Dr. Bobby said, knowledge is power. So whatever we can do to help elevate people's knowledge, that's what I'd like to do um, so that people have what they need. What I don't want to see happen is all of the other things, the valid mistrust, the skepticism, the, the, the distaste for an uh, inequitable system, turn people away and have them make a choice that doesn't isn't in their best interest. I want people to be able to freely choose this because it makes sense for them or to choose no because they think it they they say it doesn't once they've got all the knowledge. So what Dr. Bobby said, knowledge is power. Keep grappling. We, we went over an hour, but it was all your fault, Dr. Deborah. Thank you no, again. No. Dr. Bobby McCamala, president of the Michigan no, yes, the Michigan Society. Close. Michigan State Medical Society. I got that right. It just took me three times. And Dr. Deborah Furholden, Associate Dean of Public Health, Michigan State University Division of Public Health. So yeah. thank you all for being here. We appreciate you. And Dr. Bobby is also the chair elect of the American Associ American Medical Association. I got that one right after a little bit of a problem. Appreciate you all. Um, God thank bless. You. Have a great night. Thank you. Have a great weekend.